Okay, we're beginning on page 16. We are working on a document on the chapter 79 in Desire of Ages entitled, It is Finished. And we're on page 16 of that document. By consenting to break one precept, men are brought under Satan's power. Satan's power is that of force. So is sin. Sin is violation of who we were made to be and do, and by sinning we do violence to ourselves and to others because we are going contrary to how we were made to be. Sin inevitably leads to death, and thus it is completely alien to the ways and character of God. By choosing to annul one of the ten laws of love, sinners separate themselves from the God of love. By substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. By substituting the legal paradigm for the moral descriptive cause-effect paradigm, Satan will be able to control the world. Now we're back to compelling powers found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. It is not surprising that the commandment Satan attacks is the one portion of the Decalogue that is the most descriptive in nature and forms its core because it contains the divine insignia of God and the Creator of all. The Sabbath clearly belongs to descriptive law because it is wholly commemorative and stands as a memorial in time of God's work as Creator and Redeemer. Just as God created the natural world to operate on descriptive laws, so His very nature operates by such law, and natural law is but a limited illustration of God's moral laws. Furthermore, the Sabbath commandment is at its heart a law of freedom and equal rights, something to be extended to all creation. Thus, it is descriptive time hailing these two principles as the foundation of God's system of governance and highlighting the fact that God is not a God of force. Okay, any comments, questions? How did Satan attack the Sabbath commandment? Well, he worked through human beings, is my understanding, to change the day to Sunday, and which we're going to come to later on in this, probably next time. Uh, although... Um, I'll just give you a, a preview of that. If you go back far enough to the worship of the sun in, in Babylonia, the sun is a, the legal god of justice. So it typifies the legal model. Now, by the time you get to the Roman period, and, and then of course, uh, Roman Christian period, the sun is more a typification of kingly power. It, it has shifted in the, in the Roman uh, religion to be more about kingly power. And so, solus in, sol invictus, sol invictus, this invincible son, uh, was, was a superior god. So, it, but if, if you understand that the legal model is predicated on power, I mean, the entire legal system that we have is all about power, enforcing, uh, getting people to do what we think is right without there being any transformation internally. So sometime we probably need to unpack all of the ingredients of the legal model 
and, and what lies behind it. By assailing the Sabbath, Satan attempted to entrench humanity in his legal system of governance. He first tried with the chosen people to bind the Sabbath by arbitrary rules that trampled its descriptive nature and turned it into a legalistic burden. When Jesus rested in the tomb over the Sabbath, in commemoration of his triumph for God's vindication at the cross, Satan schemed to further his hatred for the Sabbath and its meaning. By persecuting the Jews, he persuaded early Christians to wish to leave behind any Jewish identification, and thus the Sabbath. Then he turned the Christians toward the day that was historically most tied to the legal system he had invented on the plains of Shinar. The day of the sun, the ancient god of justice and law. On the stella of Hammurabi's laws is a picture of Shamash, the gun, sun god hand, handing to the king the insignia of justice from which he issued his laws. And let me add one thing that might help clarify this. The Roman legal system was elaborate. And anciently law and kingship went hand in hand because the king in, in Babylonia and I don't know how this worked with uh, the Caesars but I know in Babylon the king was kind of the last court of review for law and he also could issue laws as reforms so we have the Hammur laws of Hammurabi and so on but it seems that law and kingship are anciently tied together so I haven't been able to study Roman sun worship uh, because it, you often end up in Mithraism uh, when you do that. And Mithraism was a mystery religion. So we don't know as much probably about it as we do about Babylonia. At the end of time, as the Sabbath is proclaimed more fully and the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, the two systems, the legal, Satan's, and the moral, God's, will stand face to face in opposition with unparalleled clarity. Then, the Sabbath will be vindicated as the day God set apart as holy to lift human beings out of the economic model that undergirds historically and currently all the legal systems of the time. Of time. Those who keep the seventh-day Sabbath will do so not because of the legal command from God, but despite the legal command of human beings with power, just as Jesus withstood Satan's attempts to break down his barriers to use to the use of force. The only way they will be able to remain firm is if they understandingly have the moral law with its constructs of freedom, love, and trust firmly written in their understanding. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the laws of God. They will seek to compel the consciences of others, and in their zeal to enforce these laws, they will oppress their fellow men. Okay, let's pause there. Any questions or comments? is probably pretty standard fare so if there aren't any why don't we go ahead thus it will become clear that the legal model with its imposed arbitrary penalties is a system of force this was shown in the middle ages when not long after Anselm of Can Canterbury wrote Curdus Homo his satisfaction theory of the atonement that is one of the ancestors of the modern forensic model of atonement the Inquisition was established to deal with heresies. In the, middle, in the Middle Ages, people lacked a construct that would enable them to perceive fully the truth about God. 
and the nature of his law and the consequences of sin. But since the Enlightenment, with the development of science, cause-effect relationships can be better understood as not manipulated or arbitrated by God. At the end of time, then, the Sabbath will become the banner of the picture of God outlined in this chapter. The two systems, legal and moral, will each bear its own fruit. The principles of force, arbitrariness, imposed externalism, and penalty will stand in contrast to the principles of truth and love. Okay. Any questions or comments? I don't know. I think it's interesting that the development of science actually complements our view of theology in this case. Yeah. 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 A lot of people try to separate the two. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, actually, religion gave rise to science, if, if you study that historically. Yeah. It's interesting that the, in the Middle Ages, the church fathers believed in natural law. They talked about it a lot, actually. But they didn't believe it in the way that we do now, uh, in the pre-enlightenment periods. They saw our natural law as very much like legal laws, something God arbitrarily imposed and, and arbitrarily controlled. It was the Enlightenment and the subsequent scientific revolution that brought about that change in understanding. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven, will be continued until the end of time. Every man will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed, and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. In light of the truth about God, the nature of his governance, What else could be the final test? The truth will be so clear about the kind of obedience God wants and the opposition so fully ripe that the nature of the two government systems will be fully clear. In terms of how we may see it, it will be the issue of obedience to God's freedom-giving, transforming truth and love versus obedience to an arbitrary, man-made system devised by the mastermind of evil. A religion of fear leads to rebellion, while those afraid force themselves to obey. The issue, then, is is performance or compliance versus character development. Every character will be fully developed. This can only take place when the two systems, legal and moral, are fully realized at the end of their development. Any questions or comments? Well, one of the things that continually stands out to me is the full, demel- the full development of both of these so that men can understand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the time finally comes. You know, I have come to believe that we do not emphasize enough the importance of understanding. Understanding God, understanding why he asks us to do what he does, why he is the way he does, why he does things the way he does. And 
if you study the, the understa- concept of understanding in the Bible, it becomes very clear that without understanding, there's no healing, there's no sanctification, there's nothing. Uh, and so that those who are stuck in this, I don't want to say what, <laughs> maybe that's too strong a word, uh, stuck, stuck in this paradigm where I've got to force myself to obey until I obey perfectly and, I, and, and get caught up in, in some kind of sinless perfectionism where they're constantly trying to overcome this or that sin. They're missing the whole ballpark. And instead of becoming sanctified, they might make some minimal progress, but on the higher levels of love and truth and mercy and, and justice and all of those things, I mean justice in the sense of fairness, they're, they're usually bereft of those qualities. They don't understand them, and they don't understand why they obey. They just, they're, they're in, the, in the construct of a humble servant who doesn't ask what his master is doing and why, but simply obeys without question. So then does that make intellectual pursuit a must? Ellen White actually makes the statement that all who have reasoning powers are to be intellectual Christians. And she talks about practicing, thinking in ways, and I, I'm, I'm having to loosely construe what she says because I'm not remembering the wording, but, it, but she talks about uh, educating the mind and, and honing our ability to think and to do and, and to reason. She talks about using all the reasoning powers equally in a single day in order that we not lose any of them. So she has quite a bit to say that we've ignored. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Satan and all who have joined him in rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish, root and branch, from Malachi 4.1. Satan, the root, and his followers, the branches. The word will be fulfilled to the prince of evil. Because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Then the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider this place, and it shall not be. They shall be as though they had not been. Now Ellen White takes a flying leap over the second coming and the millennium to the very end of the great controversy. Her explanation of the death of the wicked will be the clinching point for her attempt to contrast the two sides in the conflict. It is obvious that she is about to clarify fully the issues at stake in her explanation of why Jesus had to die. She starts by using the verb perish to describe the death of the wicked instead of the word destroy. Next, she states, This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. He is alienated from the life of God. Christ says, All they that hate me love death. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. 
This accomplished, they received the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. Every word of this paragraph is significant to the issues at hand. They recall the paragraph on page 759 where she describes Satan's government as one of compelling power and God's authority as resting on goodness, mercy, and love. Obviously, God does not compel the wicked to die. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. That is to say that the final destruction of the wicked is not part of Satan's method of action, but is in harmony with God's principles of goodness, mercy, and love. Okay, any questions, observations, or comments? This is one of the most important statements in this chapter. Without this statement, what she says on page 759 about compelling power being only under Satan's government, the Lord's principles are not of this order, we would not understand that statement fully without this paragraph. Actually, in, in the end, what we're going to see is the development, the full development and manifestation and outworking of the principles of force in, in the destruction of the wicked. Because what they do, what happens to them, is all going to be part of that paradigm. And we're going to see its full consequences. It self-destructs. It self-destructs, yes. And we have, we have what I call typological illustrations of that all through history. Uh, to me, one of the most important ones is Hitler. The people who tried to kill Hitler all failed. And they tried very hard, and they nearly succeeded, but they all failed. And in the end, it was Hitler who took Hitler's life. And to me, that's a type. Judas is another type uh, of someone who commits suicide uh, when he realizes totally that he was in the wrong, in the wrong way. The perishing of the wicked is not an act of holding on to the wicked against their will. It will therefore not be seen by the wicked as an act of mercy that still holds out, longing for the return of the sinner. In fact, the wicked will see that receiving the results of their own choice is less merciful than dying by divine euthanasia. The perishing of the wicked will be divine wrath equals giving them up to their choice. See Romans 1, 18-28. Unmixed. Revelation 14:10. Usually understood to be undiluted with mercy. Why? The rejecters of his mercy reap that which they have sown. They have rejected mercy, thus cutting themselves off from it. So God lets them have their own way. They receive the results of their own choice. Okay, any, any questions or comments on that? See, I've heard it said that God will lovingly destroy the wicked. <laughs> That could only mean, in the, in the person who said that, that God euthanizes the wicked. Injects them maybe with lethal injection or something. And puts them to sleep like we do animals. But this is, is letting cause and effect work itself out. So why don't we go on to the next paragraph. 
Were God to perform euthanasia and simply lay them to sleep, Satan would demand entrance into heaven because now God is really like him, arbitrary and operating in a legal sphere of imposed penalty. Furthermore, if cause-effect relationships do not play out fully, then the very basis of security, the orderly way in which God runs the universe, is no longer in effect, nor is it valid. God would be abrogated the very foundation principle of his law, and thus destroy the foundation of his throne, justice. This is not arbitrary. Running the universe on anything less than cause-effect relationships is arbitrariness. Furthermore, without the fully unmitigated results of sin, how would the loyal universe ever really know what sin actually does to, it, to sinners? Hmm. It is in this, in part, that enables them eternally to loathe sin and to love the God who only seeks to save, not to destroy. Any questions or comments? Okay, Tracy. Ellen White goes on to describe how this works. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. This means that mercy is less cause-effect than justice, because God in mercy has been keeping us alive by suspending cause-effect for many centuries. But mercy is not thereby arbitrary, because within moral cause-effect relationships, people who are deceived and can be undeceived are to be given time to see the light. Page 762. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. Each person in their life will reveal either the principles of force or the principles of truth and love. This accomplished, they receive their own choice. Page 764. The word results says it all. It is a word that most naturally fits cause-effect relationships. Sin is whatever is contrary to the principles of truth, goodness, mercy, and love. Love is life, and anti-love is death. When God revealed to Moses his glory, he made all his goodness pass before him and proclaimed his name, his character, to be full of graciousness, mercy, goodness, and truth. Yes, he will by no means clear the guilty, but will allow them the consequences of their choice. Yet Moses could not see God's face and live. In ancient Near Eastern perceptions, seeing someone's face, see, seeing someone face to face, was equivalent to seeing their favor or mercy. Moses could only endure seeing God's backside, his turning away, his wrath, because sinners reject God's mercy. Seeing God's merciful face results in death. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is loved will destroy them. Note that Ellen White puts love and glory together as a whole. Clearly, she is speaking in terms of cause and effect. The variable in the formula is human, not divine. Sin is a problem with us, not with God. Sin itself is lethal, not God. We are the ones who leave him, who cut ourselves off from him, who place ourselves out of harmony with his glory. We are the ones who are hostile and afraid of him. Yes, God hates sin, because sin destroys those whom he loves, because sin is alien to love and thus to his character. Okay, any questions or comments? Can you explain a little more of how God's character as mutually exclusive from sin and hate 
makes uh, God's character more deadly. I'm not sure if I quite understand that yet. I don't understand all the physics in it, and I don't think anybody does. Uh, we tend to separate the physical realm from the spiritual realm and, and the emotional realm a lot. And consequently, we can't really fully understand and grapple with this language because we don't have, we don't have the constructs, I think, to really fully understand it. So I think we understand it more metaphorically than we do literally, if I may say that. But I, uh, let me go back to when God made his glory manifest to Moses. You remember, he could, Moses could only see the backside of God. He could not see his face. And God's faith in, in the ancient Near Eastern understanding, if a king refused to look at a subject, he turned his face away, that was death to that subject. They would take him out and execute him, or banish him, or whatever. Uh, if you remember, Am uh, Absalom killed Ammon for raping his sister yeah. Tamar. King David would not see uh, Absalom's face, he banished him. And only when he was pled with and kind of softened a bit with time would he allow Am or Absalom to come back and see his face. So seeing his face was seeing his favor. And, and you have to look at this through the ancient Near Eastern eyes in order to understand what God is really conveying. He's saying, my face, my mercy, my favor, my grace is so life-giving that if you reject it, you just, you're destroyed. I mean, it, you can't live seeing my face. Um, and so turning away from people and actually leaving them, which is his wrath, is in a sense merciful because they're not getting the full, the full manifestation of God's face. But this poses a whole lot of conundrums for me and I haven't worked them all out. Uh, there's another article in Science of the Times, April 14, 1898, where she talks about the fire that consumes. And she attributes it not to God's glory there. She attributes it to the emotional agony of the wicked, who, I think when they see God's glory, they realize his love, but because they're so hardened against it, they cannot they cannot exist in it and it, it brings out all their rebellion and all their hardness and, and they self-destruct. That's kind of where I put the pieces together and it's not a perfect fit but it's the closest I can come at this point. I'll tell you a story. It's a very painful story that happened uh, with a student here at PUC. And I... I'm being careful and I don't want this to get back to the student. This was many years ago. The student had a very difficult childhood because one of his parents left and would not communicate with the child anymore. So there was a lot of pain. I was beginning to develop more fully an experiential approach to the love of God and teach that in my classes. And so one morning I was dealing with the fall of Adam and Eve and I dealt with it purely in experiential terms. What was going on psychologically, what was, what was happening to their minds as they interchanged with the serpent and, and so on. And this student was in the class 
afterwards he came to my office and he wanted to talk and he said, I understand fully what you were saying this morning because I'm experiencing the same thing with my girlfriend. And he began to, to outline what it was he was experiencing. And somehow our conversation wended its way around until we got to talking about the love of God and I and he said I know I should just let God love me but I, he said I can't I can't there was so much pain and he was so locked into that pain that he, he had hardened himself and I think this is what happens to us when we're hurt by life by people we tend to harden ourselves to try to cope with that pain we we can't afford to be tender-hearted when people are abusing us. And, and so we tend to, to get tough, tough with life, tough with ourselves. And, and consequently, we tend to harden the heart. And that's why you remember Jesus talked about how the Israelites, the reason God gave them laws for divorce or allowed them to divorce was because of the stiffness of their necks and the hardness of their hearts. It is, it is resisting love it is well it's it's failing to realize that god can love you through something and and trying to deal with it yourself and harden yourself so that you you know sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me uh that kind of reaction it's doing that that places us out of harmony with love and so this student ultimately refused to move and what happened next was he left PUC uh, went to a mission college uh, became a pastor and became very conservative and I, I, I remember that moment so clearly because I, I, was, I was hurting for him and, and longing for him to be willing to admit his woundedness because that's, what, that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. It's only as we recognize our woundedness and recognize we're hurting inside and reach out to the love of God that he can love and begin to heal us. I, I see this as extremely real. Not just tacit, I accept the love of God, now I can go on type of thing that it's, it's very real healing so I, the way I see the wicked is they've hardened themselves perpetually uh, a, a good example I see most of you have your Bibles turn to Romans Romans 2 in Romans 1 Paul has just talked about people about God for the crea- uh, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping the creature instead of the creator and all the results from that and he talks about God's wrath in terms of all these results which are sinful uh, things taking over the heart so in chapter 2 he says therefore verse 1 you have no excuse whoever you are when you judge others for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you the judge are doing the very same things you say we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with the truth do you imagine whoever you are that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourselves you will escape the judgment of God so far he sounds very legal 
in his construct. And he's talking to legalists. It's legalists who judge others. Verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That is to a change of heart, to becoming tender-hearted and receiving the love of God. Verse 5, But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath, and I'm going to change the English because I think it better reflects the Greek. You are storing up wrath in yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, as we resist the love of God and we build up all these barriers, our hearts become so hardened, we store up. The, the result is that we tend to store our anger. You know? and, and our anger, when, when we do that, when we resist the love of God, and we still try to obey Him and keep His commands, what we're doing is rebelling against God in our hearts. You can't do it any other way. You, the only way that you can keep from rebelling against God in His commandments is if you understand his love and that love has come into your life and transformed you. So what I see Paul outlining here is what happens to make the wicked not be able to stand in the presence of God. Um, trying to think if there's another way I can say this to make it clearer. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. Had Satan and his host then been left to reap the full result of their sin, they would have perished. But it would not have been apparent to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. What didn't the angels understand at the beginning of the great controversy? Had Satan and his host then been left to reap the full result of their sin equals cause-effect, they would have perished, not they would have been destroyed. But it would not have been apparent to, the, to heavenly beings that this was the inevitable result of sin. This is the core problem of, in the great controversy. This is why Jesus had to die. The stronghold in the core of the legal model on which it rises or falls is imposed penalty. This is partly what makes it legal as opposed to moral and spiritual. In a legal system, law enforcement has to enforce the penalty up arbitrarily and externally. In God's moral system, punishment is the inevitable result of sin. To put her statement in other words, had God chosen to let Satan and his followers suffer the inevitable results of their rebellion immediately, they would have suffered the final death then and there. But that death would have been seen as some throughout God's universe as divine execution, and thus as an imposed penalty. It would not have been clear to those watching that it was inevitable consequences. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as evil seed to produce its deadly fruit of sin and woe. 
Because of Satan's charge, you will not surely die. God had to make it clear that sin leads to death. Thus, Jesus had to die because only one perfectly innocent, who was created mortal, could make it clear. And everything depended on Jesus' words on the cross about what he was experiencing. If he cried out, My God, my God, why are you killing me? The great controversy would have been lost to Satan. This explains why Jesus struggled in his mind over God's character on the cross. Any questions or comments? Um, kind of maybe an unrelated note, but I'm remembering in the story of Moses and Pharaoh when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart and how you're talking that the same son that hardened clay melts wax. Could that kind of be understood that way? That's one of the ways I interpret the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that he, if God had never sent him the truth about himself and his power, Pharaoh would not have had anything to harden his heart against. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, God hardened his heart by sending him the truth. Mm -hmm. But he didn't harden his heart arbitrarily and mechanically and externally. Mm -hmm. Upon Christ as our substitute and surety was laid the iniquity of us all. And this, these paragraphs come from the previous chapter, Calvary. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his pleasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his son with consternation. All his life, Christ had been publishing to the fallen world the good news of his father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme, but now with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Satan, with his fierce temptation, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror, or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. Jesus' substitution was necessary to reveal the truth about the nature of sin and its results. It was penal substitution only in this moral sense, not in the legal sense. As sin-bearer, he revealed the truth about what sin does to one holy given over to it. He felt sin's weight, its guilt, and the wrath of God, which was the withdrawal of the divine countenance and the hiding of his father's face. Everyone's guilt was pressing on him. The natural consequences of the full experience of sin Satan used the opportunity to tempt Jesus to believe that God's wrath against sin was so terrible that Jesus would never see his reconciling face again. Jesus experienced the absence of love. 
all of the attributes of Satan. In this case, he must have had a strong sense of Satan's portrayal of God, divine arbitrariness, force, malignancy, cruelty, anger, fury, condemnation, and compelling power. In the absence of his father's presence of love, he no doubt was tempted to believe that his administration was like Satan's. Okay, any comments or questions? I've been struggling with uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me for as long as I can remember. I, I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know, maybe you can help me understand that a little bit um, better. Well, the hiding of the Father's countenance is really what Jesus was feeling. And so he was, he was expressing his feeling of being abandoned by his Father. Why have you forsaken me? Is, is, it's a cry that I think all of us at some point in our lives utter in some way. And what the significance of that cry to me is that he didn't say, my God, my God, why are you killing me? So he was, he was expressing what he was actually experiencing, which was God not being there. And, and this was superimposed on Jesus in a sense, not arbitrarily, but as an, an example of what will happen with the wicked when God lets them go. The wicked cut themselves off from God. But Jesus had always been one with his Father. He never had sinned. He had never lost to Satan's power of force. So there was no way Jesus could cut himself off from his Father. Jesus is not in the same ballpark then as the wicked. So in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of of what would happen to the wicked, uh, God withdrew his countenance. That is, he, as it were, put a veil between so that Jesus could not sense that he was there. Does that answer your question? For the most part, um, that that the part that that it's really the most tricky for me is if if Jesus Jesus understands all. Wh- why would he have to ask? I think that something's happened at the cross that is enormous and, and very hard to wrap our minds around, and that is. I think of Ellen White's statement that never in the history of the universe was there such an asundering of the divine powers. That is separation of God from God. And that is, that's almost like splitting the atom in terms of emotional impact. (laughs) Um, And I think we can't grasp fully. We're, we're very human and we're very sinful and we can't grasp fully what the significance of that is. But I think that's, that's, that's a sundering. That this is something very real. That it was as if God and his son were for the only time in history separated from each other. And that's separating life from love and love from life and life from life. Love from love. It's, it's horrific. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can grapple with it completely. Yeah. So the sense in which Jesus was our substitution was just in the sense that he experienced what we should have experienced, but it, it wouldn't have been clear if we experienced it. Yeah, it's not legal substitution. It's, yeah. it's real substitution where, where he, 
he does for us so that we can see. It's, it's demonstration. It's all about demonstration of the truth about the nature and consequences of sin. I think this is a good stopping place. So we'll pick up with this next time. Next time I'll bring you fresh copies. So you can bring your old ones if you want, but otherwise we don't need to. Okay. Yes, next time will be our last time. <laughs> we will definitely get done. So when did you write this commentary? I wrote it. I, I, the date's at the very end. Let's see. I, I wrote it July 25, 2009. Mm -hmm. And actually I wrote it before that. What happened is this was a chapter in Desire of Ages that I had always struggled with per certain parts of it, mm -hmm. particularly because I... I struggled with how to understand them. Do I understand them in a legal framework or do I understand them in a cause-effect framework? And because of the terminology and, and just simply they presented concepts I couldn't fully grasp. And so I sat down and I decided for my devotions in the morning that I was going to go only as fast as I could go and understand each paragraph, go paragraph by paragraph. So I started taking notes and those notes became those commentaries. Okay, let's have prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the death of Jesus and for what it means to understand that you never use force, that your government is built upon the principles of love and love always lets people be free. We ask that we may more fully understand this as we conclude next week and as we pause to look over this document pray that you will give a special wisdom to more clearly understand this and so that we can present it to others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.